0: Hey, Radio Survivor listeners, we wanted to let you know that our show is now available for broadcast to all non-commercial radio stations at zero cost. That means community stations, college stations, public radio stations, and low-power FM stations, as well as internet stations, are all eligible to air Radio Survivor. So if you work at a station where Radio Survivor would be a great fit for the schedule, you can learn more at radiosurvivor.com slash radio, or if you know a station that would be a great fit, please recommend the show to them. Our goal is to spread the word about great community media and hope to educate more listeners about why they should value and support their local community media outlets. Once again, you can learn more at radiosurvivor.com slash radio. Now on with the show.
1: What Sinclair is proposing to do here is essentially the clear channel model of content production. The news you're gonna see in Indiana, in Milwaukee, in Minneapolis, in every market where Sinclair is gonna have a station is gonna be one set of national newscasts and then you're not really going to have local news. And that is significant because you're taking these stations that are licensed to these individual communities and you're taking away their local character in favor of a sort of a top-down national production model.
2: Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Eric Klein. And my name is Paul Reismandel. And
0: on today's show, uh, we're going to dig into what's going on with the Federal Communications Commission, the agency of the United States government that oversees radio and television and internet and cell phones. Uh, There's been not really change. The, the, <laughs>
2: on, on Radio Survivor today, you're going to help us separate uh, FCC fact from FCC fiction. It, yeah, Indeed. We're going to do a little bit of that and uh, learn
0: a little bit more about FCC chairman uh, Ajit Pai. Uh, he was just re-upped, so it was the end of his term this year. And he was reconfirmed and renominated. Uh, so the Senate reconfirmed him. The President Trump renominated him. So he continues to be chairman. And he's got a belly full of fire. And he's taking aim at all sorts
2: of things. His career has always been about uh, pro-consolidation of the he's media. He's been deregulatory, yes, yeah. Although he's also a big fan of radio. I mean,
0: again, uh, that doesn't mean that you're the not existence. also- he, a wants f- <laughs> he wants it to exist. He wants it to exist. It doesn't Me mean you're not, you're not a fan uh, also of consolidation. So, you know, th- those things, unfortunately, are not intention, although many of us would say, argue that they are. And to help us get through it, uh, uh, I'm talking with Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota. He's been on before. He is our uh, kind of our resident FCC watcher. And he helps us to break down what's going on at the FCC and, and what kind of uh, effects that will have on our communication environment, on community media, on community radio, and all the things that we care about here at Radio Survivor.
2: Yeah, if you like radio or listen to it,
0: or uh, television,
2: or have in the past, right. But <laughs> I was going to say is that, like, you know, what's going to happen at the FCC this week uh, probably won't have an impact on your radio tomorrow. But it will change what your radio is like. In in uh, it could be nine months to nine years. Yeah, but yes. It, the, the landscape gets
0: uh, redeveloped by by these policy exactly. changes. And, and what happens in one arena, like television? Also, can have affection. Radio. There's a lot of co-ownership, or
2: it just sort of paves the way. Gosh, right? although these days the impacts could be very fast, F- felt quickly as opposed Indeed, to it, it slowly as they might have been. Very much in the previous generation. And so, that,
0: and so that's why we talk about it here. It's not the topic of every single episode. We don't want to be uh trying to track every single minute policy change or cuz it really it's not really minute policy change it's like we're not we don't want to be sitting here trying to track every sort of uh uh,
2: pronouncement.
0: Every pronouncement, right? We're not. I read the tea leaves. We don't want to become sort of the Politico of uh, of media communications. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm That'd glad fun, that there are yeah. people <laughs> who are doing it, but it it takes the kind of bandwidth we don't quite have. Plus, we want to spend a lot of time celebrating great community media and the people doing it. But uh, every so often, we definitely need to dip in, and we're so glad uh, that Professor Christopher Terry is willing to spend some time with us every so often i mean he's been on before to talk about the legacy of consolidation of media ownership regulation and sort of the fcc's failures therein. you can find those previous interviews and some things he's written for us at radiosurvivor.com if you go to our show notes go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast uh we'll have that listed out for you so it's easy to
2: find if you want to go back and uh hear more from christopher terry well without further ado i think we should check out that interview that you recorded
0: Welcome, Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota. back to the podcast. Glad to have you here.
1: Always happy to be here
0: uh, so so chris uh, the fcc there 's a lot going on, and then I mean with President Trump uh, threatening the broadcast license in quotes of NBC. We have a lot to talk about. So let me, let me just sort of start right with that first question. I think it's the thing that people are thinking about. Can President Trump revoke the broadcast license of the National Broadcasting Company?
1: No. <laughs> no, he may not. Uh, <clears throat> setting aside the fact that we have that pesky First Amendment that gets in the way of that, NBC as a network doesn't actually have any broadcast licenses. Now, what NBC does have is some ONOs, which are owned and operated stations that the NBC network owns. There's about eight of those. Most of them are in pretty serious markets, New York, Los Angeles, uh, Chicago, for example. But President Trump nor the FCC would have the power to launch a revocation proceeding based on content that was critical of President Trump uh, that was aired by NBC News.
0: And I mean, they can launch in. They can issue fines for things like indecency, right? Uh, and that's something we've talked about many times in the show, and most people are sort of aware of that. I mean, does does truthfulness play into it at all? Can Can the FCC? Let's just you know. Think about this sort of uh, let's just sort of adopt uh, Trumpian thinking for just a second. For just a second. So, if there were sort of evidence that that somehow NBC was widely fabricating and spreading provable lies, uh, you know that that would maybe qualify as slander. Where the president, not a public figure, uh, could the SEC take action on that?
1: Um, theoretically, they could. Um- However, conceptually and practically, it would be almost impossible. There is a longstanding and, as far as I can tell, still on the books rule called the news distortion rule. It's never been enforced by the FCC, but it does give them some leeway where news is being manufactured. Um, In real terms, what we're talking about is quite old law, though. And you mentioned what President Trump's uh, legal recourse would essentially be here. And even as a public figure, if he could prove knowing falsehood or reckless disregard for the truth, he could go after NBC in a defamation suit. But um, the opportunity to win a suit like that as president of the United States, not impossible.
0: Right. Okay. So so I just wanted to kind of, you know, explore sort of the sort of the edges of this and and also understand that that the Federal Communications Commission, although it's part of the executive branch, of course, has uh well under under full circumstances has five commissioners. Uh you know, three who are come from the party in the executive power, so in this case Republican Party and and two in the minority party in this case uh, the Democratic Party. So you'd have to get those three Republicans at the very least to to be in lockstep ready and willing to to fully do the president's bidding in that case and and it certainly would be controversial to say the least, don't you
2: think?
1: I'm not even sure even if you had all five of the commissioners on board, which you clearly don't, you could actually bring this to a successful conclusion that would revoke a license and part of the reason for that is that under the current rules – you actually have to be guilty as a media organization of breaking commission law for there to be a license revocation proceeding. Uh, In historical terms, it used to be possible to challenge licenses when they came up, and license renewals were actually a pretty elaborate uh, proceeding. But today it's little more than sending in a postcard and a few pages of data on what you've done since the last time and i i mean i i don't want to say this too strongly but i literally do not think there's a way that this could happen even if you dug as deep and as dark into the rules and proceedings as you could possibly get i still don't believe you could you could actually get to a point where NBC's licenses for their owned and operated stations could be repealed
0: and and of course ironically enough uh that that sort of uh, deregulation, and uh, I mean, at least some of that responsibility lays on the heads of of Republicans. <laughs> Coming back, going
1: back to the Reagan era, it's it lies exactly on there. I mean, it, you know, their effort was to simplify the process, streamline it, make it less burdensome. So they extended the terms of the license in terms of the length of the licenses being renewed, and they essentially implemented a set of proceedings that says. Unless the license has been uh, violated in some way, uh, it is very, very difficult, almost reaching impossible for that license to be denied during renewal.
0: And so now we have uh, Chairman Pai has been uh, re-upped. So he has been uh, re-nominated and re-approved to be on the commission and remain uh, the chairman of the the commission. And – for the first time I can remember, really, there was at least some small campaign, uh, grassroots campaign to uh, to try and get uh, the Senate to not approve him to to, to fire uh, Pie, but it wasn't successful. I mean, have you seen anything like that before?
1: Um, nothing on the scale that we saw most recently. The uh, there definitely was an organized attempt, although it it sort of filtered out to at least bring attention to the fact that. Uh, during the end of this last term that Pi had, he had been kind of sitting on a couple of controversial decisions that he's now free to bring to a conclusion uh, now that he's been re-upped at the commission. Uh, Notably among those are a repeal of the Title II net neutrality rules and uh, whatever mechanism the commission is going to use to try and bring the Sinclair Tribune mergers to a uh, to a successful conclusion.
0: So let's talk about the Sinclair Tribune merger. Now this is this this regards uh, television principally here, uh, uh, but I think is notable uh, for for radio survivor listeners uh, in in part because it's part of the the overall kind of consolidation of of the broadcast media industry. In the United States, and sort of has these uh, sort of often unintended or or unforeseen effects uh, on all of us. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what about this proposed merger and why uh, many folks in sort of the media democracy space are are opposed to it fairly uh, vociferously.
1: Well, there's two sides to that part of it. the The opposition to it is sort of twofold. On in one set of circumstances, you have. Uh, The company itself, lots of people on sort of the left, if you will, object to Sinclair's point of view. Um, Notably, Sinclair runs its stations sort of top-down, mandates that their newscasts at the local level include some national content, much of which has a conservative bias. I am less concerned about the Sinclair merger on that point than on the second half of what's going on with this merger, in that the FCC is pinned in place by something we've talked about several times when I've been on, the remands in the Prometheus Radio Project decisions. And to get around this and the fact that they're not able to quickly change media ownership rules, they have reinstated something known as the UHF discount. Since television stations, uh, over-the-air television stations are now mostly in the UHF band, reinstating the discount, which was applied when UHF signals weren't very stable back in the analog television days, means that the deal can be brought in under the existing media ownership limits by counting Sinclair's television stations at about half of the rate by which they currently would apply. And that's a significant deal because what the commission is doing is it's trying to backdoor a set of rules it can't win in court on and trying to get around them by uh, sort of regulatory selection, if you will. So let me
0: get this straight, make sure I understand this. So what's happening here is that there are still in force uh, rules, which dictate limits on how many, Television stations a given company can own. And back in the analog TV days, uh, you counted a VHF station, right? Channel 2 through 13 is like a full station. But a UHF station, your channel 14, 29, or whatever. Uh, which often had, was harder to receive didn 't have the same status uh, priority as a vHF station you counted it as as less than a station towards that limit, so you could own effectively a few more UHF stations in your portfolio back in those analog days when we would change those you know you, you, all, you might have had analog tuner, but now in the digital era right when they when we went digital in two thousand and nine, uh most stations got moved into the UHF band. Right, uh, they got moved. The VHF band is pretty much abandoned; it no longer exists, really, for for television. But so how? So then, it's sort of like all the stations don't count as a full station. How are they? How are they doing? How is it? How are they making this count? How are they determining between what is a UHF station and not a UHF station when everyone's on the UHF band? It it sort of defies my logic.
1: Well, we're not really clear on how they're going to apply it, but. The basic principle of the UHF discount is it counts a station that is broadcasting in the UHF band of the spectrum at half the rate of a VHF station. If you move Sinclair's existing stations into the UHF band and then apply the discount, they count as half as many as they can. But it's important to understand the scale of this merger. This merger would give Sinclair access to 72% of the national television audience, the current limit is 39%. Oh. But if the application is at the UHF counts the stations at half under the discount, they'll be able to bring this deal in successfully at about 36%. Hmm.
0: So what, so basically it's some, it's, it's some funny math that turns 72 into 36. (laughs) Exactly.
1: That's exactly what it is. And the commission's doing this because they can't currently modify the 39% cap until they can answer the remands in the Prometheus decisions from 2004, 2011, and more recently, 2016.
0: And these remands are when the Third Circuit Court of Appeals reviewed the last round of media ownership rule updates. Uh, the court said, wait, what you're trying to do to television doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. You don't seem to have made the, the case that this is justifiable to loosen the rules. Uh, and so until the FCC answers that, the old rules are in effect effectively, right? There's no new rules that are written. They can't raise the standard. And so now they're, they're trying to shoehorn this deal uh, into what effectively are the old rules, right? Is that what's going on?
1: Yes, um, although in the last few days, there's been some discussion that maybe the answer to this uh, quandary is to just launch into a new media ownership proceeding with a goal in mind. Uh, Counting television stations, reinstating the UHF discount as part of an ownership uh, assessment. The FCC will have to launch into a new proceeding in 2018, which is just a few months from now. And as part of that proceeding, they could make a case that because the stations are in the UHF ban and the UHF discount should and could apply, that alone would allow them to allow for a substantial amount of consolidation in the television industry, including the Sinclair merger. We're on, as we record this here on Friday, it's day 99 of the 180-day shot clock that the commission assesses to... um, ownership proceedings like this now. So when Comcast-NBC merged, Time Warner-Comcast was under review. FCC sets a 180-day proceeding window to take in comments, consider them, uh, and go through the procedural motions. Today's day 99. So we're getting into the neighborhood where the commission's going to have to start making moves one way or the other. And it's very likely, I think increasingly likely, that we'll see the Sinclair merger pushed into a larger element of the 2018 quadrennial media ownership review.
0: So so is it looking like then in this shot clock, this amount of time that they have to either approve – Demand modification or reject this merger. Uh, you know, it, it seems as though they may not be able to to work this uh, mathematical magic of making seventy two into thirty six. <laughs> maybe in a way that'll be satisfactory to the to the full commission, I guess, um, or at least a majority of the commissioners. So they're they're thinking, well, maybe now we have to do this rules review anyway. Is there a way we can make? 72 the new number in some way shape or form and justified is, is that that's basically what's going on
1: yeah um i think that's the most likely outcome although i will put some side bets down on the following that the commission will run out the shot clock before the end of the year and then grant sinclair a waiver ahead of the ownership proceeding in 2018 and then use Sinclair's merger waiver as justification for reinstituting the UHF discount and/or expanding the local, the national television ownership cap. They'll say that Sinclair has proven that you know the rule is out of date; it's from 1996, and you know that we have a successful situation where one network operation, one station operation, one owner is actually. Uh, successfully operating stations at this range. Um, The commission did this a lot between 97 and 2005 with radio stations where they would uh, grant a waiver for a merger ahead of the rules being changed and then use the existing waiver as justification to change the rules.
0: And and a waiver is just, they say, the rules won't apply here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's (laughs) just where – it's a, it's a pass essentially it's a regulatory pass on you know we're we're allowing it in this one situation but what happens is that one situation is then used to used and cited as precedent for the world didn't collapse we'll just go with this as is
0: And I'm talking with Professor Christopher Terry at the University of Minnesota. We're covering the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, and what's going on there now that uh, Chairman Ajit Pai has been uh, reinstated, renominated, and reapproved. For his uh, stint as the chairman and a commissioner at uh, the FCC, you're listening to Radio Survivor. This is The Sound of Strong Communities. My name is Paul Reismandel. And Chris and I have been talking about uh, the looming uh, merger between Tribune uh, television stations and Sinclair television stations and the various machinations that might be happening in order for this approval to to happen in order for the the, uh, the merger to be approved under current rules, which would seem to say that the merger would create a company with too much power, too many television stations uh, covering too much of the United States under current rules and, and, and the kind of origami that's happening to uh, make it seem as though there's fewer stations. And so my question for you, Chris, is uh, why? Why? <laughs> Why Why is – it seem as though the FCC and Commissioner Pai in particular, why are they so dead set on, a, on approving this merger, on pushing this mega merger of TV stations through?
1: Well, I think it depends on who you ask. Um, there's certainly a point of view out there that because Sinclair is a Trump-supporting media organization that there's some pressure to do it that way. But – that may be partially part of the story. That might be a significant part of the story even. But I think it's it's larger than that in that it has more to do with this over, still overriding ph- philosophy at the commission that more is better in terms of ownership and that under this competition model regulation where we've seen a lot of these kinds of mergers since 1996, that if we just continue to expand this – It will definitely work out this time. And I think it's part and parcel of something that started back in the 1980s under Commissioner Fowler's uh, term in office, where you see the idea that media companies could be run better and provide better public service if they're allowed to make more money. And Sinclair will certainly be able to make substantial amounts of money from this arrangement.
0: Hmm. So it's 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 just this overarching sort of deregulatory consolidation-centric kind of philosophy that's that's been in action now for for going on thirty some years. Um, even though when it's gone in front of an appeals court, like the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, courts have basically slapped the FCC and said, "But you you don't show any any uh, evidence." in effect you 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 haven't demonstrated how this is actually working for the public interest why this why these consolidations have resulted in better service, et cetera you only sort of evidence that uh, one company gets to own more stations to possibly make more money is that is that the is that a pretty good gloss
1: yeah it's a pretty good gloss at it I mean I think you don't have to look any further than the filing that Sinclair released this week few weeks back, the FCC asked Sinclair to specifically respond in a meaningful way to some questions about how the deal would benefit the public, and I felt like I went back in time reading this document because it, it essentially used justifications that the commission had used between 1996 and 2005, and I'm, they're all the greatest hits are in there. Uh, economy of scale, advertising markets will be better, we'll be able to provide better local programming to these smaller stations because they'll benefit from the arrangement. I mean, every every organizational uh, justification that had ever been used to justify any kind of merger between 1996 and maybe 2008 is buried in this document. And I mean, it's just a sort of a recycling of these old ideas. And that kind of fits into what we're seeing with this. We seem to be trying to ram this deal through without a real consideration for what effect it'll have on local markets and especially for local newsrooms.
0: Well, let's talk about that then, right? I mean that these ownership caps presumably exist for a purpose, right? That, that there are things which uh, – which we're looking to guard against in which why these caps exist in the first place. Uh, so putting aside, you know, the political leanings of the owners of Sinclair, uh, communications, what what are the risks what is what is at play here that should this merger go through? what are the risks that will happen to television viewers to to average people who turn on a Sinclair or Tribune station uh, at five, six, seven o'clock and, and watch local news like what what are we worried is one result of this sort of, con- of this sort of consolidation?
1: Well, I'm not so worried about the viewpoint as I am the effect on the local newsrooms themselves. What Sinclair is proposing to do here is essentially the clear channel model of content production, that the news you're going to see in Indiana, in Milwaukee, in Minneapolis, in you know every market where Sinclair is going to have a station, is going to be one set of national newscasts and then – you're not really going to have local news. You're going to have maybe a local weather person or a person who looks like a local weather person, uh, give just some relevant data to that. And that is significant because you're taking these stations that are licensed to these individual communities and you're taking away their local character in favor of a sort of a top-down national production model. And we've seen this before. I mean, this is the old, I hate to Bang my drum on this, but this is the old clear channel model of content production where they nationalized decisions about what content would go into the local markets. And Sinclair is, I mean, they're not even being shy about it. That's their plan, and that's what we'll see. And why that really matters is you're going to lose any sort of coverage of your local school board, your local government, you know, the mayor's office. All of that's going to go away in favor of sort of a nationally based uh, news approach. And when you take local out of the local newsrooms, you're doing a significant damage to how our media system was designed.
0: But just taking this sort of competition model thinking then, um, isn't it the case then? You know, someone usually has multiple local television channels to choose from. Won't just the market do its work and and, and viewers and consumers will say, well, I'll, I won't watch the local Sinclair Channel 15. I will watch, you know, the other Channel 7, which is owned by a different company because they provide me uh, they provide me better local coverage and, and Sinclair will just simply lose. It's, I mean, can't we just sort of rely in the market to take care of this.
1: Well, that's a good theory, but it doesn't account for media economics the way that you need to in that Sinclair is going to have dominant market power in many places and they're going to be able to drive things like advertising rates and it's going to be harmful to their competitors. Uh, if So it talk about that the-
0: market power. What does that mean? When you say they have dominant market power, how would Sinclair in, a, in, a, in let's say uh, if we're talking about Milwaukee – Wisconsin, how would Sinclair end up with dominant market power?
1: Well, here in Milwaukee, they're already a dominant uh, player because they gave up one of their stations in the auction here to come in compliance ahead of this deal. But it's pretty simple, right? Things as basic as the rates that cable companies have to pay to local stations Sinclair is going to be able to set the market rate on this, is that be,
0: and, and when you say market power, you mean they have a lot of stations in that market. I mean, I just want to make this really concrete. Like that means that they own multiple stations. Is that yeah? What you in mean? many,
1: in multiple markets, they will actually own more than one station, and they can use that to counter-program against their competitors in a way that's going to give them power. But with the kind of with the scale of this and the cost reduction that Sinclair is going to be able to implement through economy of scale, they'll be able to set advertising rates. They'll be able to offer packages competitive in nature to what we see for the major television networks now. And they're going to put local people in a in a bad way when they have to go up against that kind of market power.
0: So it's almost and, sort of like Walmart, right? Uh, yeah, no, Wal- it's, that's, a,
1: that's a great example. It is almost like Walmart.
0: So they'll be able to come into a market and say, well, so uh that 60 second spot that you're used to paying, you know, $3,000 for on our competitor station, we'll give it to you on we'll give you two spots, one on two stations for the same price. Or just slightly right. more, and begin to sort of use that economy of scale. Or they might be able to even say, "Okay, we'll, we'll you know, we have a station in, in in Janesville, and we have a station in Madison, we have a station in Milwaukee, and we can get, we can lock up Southern Wisconsin for you for just slightly more than what you're paying for one Milwaukee spot."
1: Right, and that isn't competitive. Any station that goes up against Sinclair is going to have to deal with the scale of Sinclair, and. That of course is the problem. When you create one one organization like this to have competition, you've got to create more organizations like this. So it sets the precedent for substantial new consolidation beyond just the Sinclair stations.
0: Right. And so what you're saying is that uh, should the FCC uh, be able to approve this merger one way or another, either by uh, sort of. Making it squeak underneath the rules through this counting their UHF stations as less than a full station, or maybe by giving them a waiver and saying, "Okay, well, I'll just go on ahead anyway." They'll be able to say, "Well, look, now that we have uh, Sinclair in order for these other stations in in Milwaukee or Des Moines or Sacramento to compete, uh, they're going to have to combine as well, right?" And so, and, and ultimately, does that mean that we just end up with one, two, maybe three major? television station owners in the u.s yeah i
1: I mean we saw it after comcast and nbc merged that everybody else tried to merge with cable companies after that and right now commissions considering the at&t verizon merger the uh you know there's a still some cable mergers out there that are occurring and these are all people that are trying to gain enough power to go up against organizations like comcast nbc And what you're going to see is you're going to see that on a local television scale, you're going to need companies that have the same size or a competitive number of stations to go up against Sinclair. So what Sinclair represents is a new round of consolidation.
0: And does the public have any voice in this? I mean, does the public get consulted at all in any any part of this process?
1: Well, Commissioner Rosenworcel today uh, put out a thing saying, start a ruckus. And she's encouraging people to voice their opinion on the Sinclair merger one way or the other. And so she's a I,
0: Democrat uh, on, the, on the commission recently uh, reappointed. Yes. And, and, and when she says raise a ruckus, what does she mean? <laughs> she mean- <laughs>
1: she's, she's saying you know the commission can be bound in part by uh, a large quantity of citizen comments when deals like this are being reviewed. And she's encouraging people to take a stand, not just on this, but on net neutrality, which we'll have to talk about a different day. But it's it's a straightforward approach. They're really going, the Democrats on the commission, both Commissioner Rosenfrey and Commissioner Clyburn are both raising a stink about this, and rightfully so, because this merger the scale of this is unprecedented. And We talk about Clear Channel a lot on the show, sort of the history uh, historical landmark for consolidation this deal is bigger than Clear Channel by leaps and bounds hmm.
0: and, and and so and, and really does affect you know the news that a majority of Americans get because television news and local television news is still quite predominant with regard to uh, to people 's news habits even even if many of us uh, are are more glued to our smartphones and our computers there 's a large swath of the population a voting population as well. Who get their news via via local television?
1: Yeah, lots of people objected to Sinclair on the viewpoint. I think that's part of the story, but I think the larger part is the actions the commission is taking to try and ram this deal through.
0: Wow. Well, well, we we will have to circle up and figure out more of what's happening uh, at the FCC with. Uh, Chairman Pai, who is uh, one of the most aggressive, I think, FCC chairman we've seen in quite some time um, in terms of his priorities as we move into this season where there's supposed to be a review of media ownership rules, which which may affect radio, uh, which will probably affect television and newspapers, um, and then we have to uh, circle back on network neutrality. What do you think the timeline is on on network neutrality? How quickly do you think uh, Chairman Pai is going to try and push this in back into the uh, spotlight?
1: I think we'll see something in the December move, in the December commission meeting.
0: Okay. Right, so it's October now, mid-October. So we're talking six weeks away, maybe. So we'll have to pay attention to that. Uh, there was public comment that that you know there was an open proceeding, and there's public comment, and so I guess what we have to look forward to, or not look forward to, as the case may be, is uh, what maneuvers uh, Chairman Pai and his colleagues on the commission try to put in place to try and justify basically dismantling. Uh, network neutrality rules—is that basically it?
1: I think we'll we'll see what their hand is going to look like uh, before the December commission meeting,
0: where they will have to try and and deal with the fact that the overwhelming millions of publicly submitted comments uh, say please keep network neutrality.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. I I'm, I'm I'd be really surprised if they pushed it into 2018.
0: Okay. Well. Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota, thank you so much for joining us again to explain what's going on at the FCC. We will talk again soon uh, to catch up on what we weren't able to cover, which is uh, network neutrality and maybe a bit more of the preview of ownership roles.
1: All right. Look forward to it. Talk to you soon.
2: You are listening to radio survivor the sound of strong communities my name is eric klein and thank you so much paul reismandel for that interview with christopher terry fcc watcher um, i'm always happy to dig into the federal communications commission policy and uh and read the tea leaves as you said uh it's good to know what's going on there um does the fcc have a building Yes, of course. They has, have a big building in Washington D.C. Yeah. What we know, you know, we talk about the White House all the time. Yeah. We talk about Capitol Hill. What what building is the FCC in? I mean,
0: people of? do protest there. And you know, and so I mean and there have been organized protests in just support called of the
2: FCC building.
0: I think so. You know, it's funny. I've never been there. Yeah. I've never gone. Um, I know people have been there, but I've never gone. I know people have gone to protest there. Um, and in fact, you know, people also protested in front of uh, chairman's houses at times sure, uh, in favor of network neutrality. And, you know, and, and I think, t- you know, it's interesting that uh, commissioner Rosenworcel, who's a Democrat is encouraging, People to make their voices heard, right? Yeah. Which, which includes, of course, through the normal channels, I think, which is submitting your comments to the FCC on proceedings. But also, it's a matter of, I'm sure, social media. It means, uh, certainly enlisting the help of, uh, of personalities like John Oliver, who, who has covered FCC policy on his HBO show and, and even has come up, uh, on late night television recently, uh, specifically around, uh, Trump threatening, the, uh, NBC's, uh, <laughs> NBC's, uh, license, as we heard, uh, Christopher Terry, dissem- disassemble that argument and, and, and show it to be all the smoke and Quite no fire that it is. a remarkable
2: moment for, in the history of Twitter and brought, is, <laughs> is how I'm going to put that. One. Oh my goodness. And what's interesting is that there is this history
0: of the FCC being used as a political right. device. Um,
2: Dumb President Nixon. Dumb, dumb Nixon is what we're
0: is calling kind of, Well, he's kind of, yeah, that's what you're – we're sort of saying that our, our number 45 is sort of behaving like d- dumb Nixon. Nixon was a little better in covering his tracks, but he certainly had um, allies file complaints with the FCC um, over negative coverage of his administration. Right. Um, they filed challenges to the licenses of TV stations owned by the Washington Post Company after the Watergate scandal was reported on by the Washington Post, for instance. But even putting aside uh, the power of the executive in that sort of way, through the 1960s, uh, stations in the Pacifica organization, Pacifica Radio, you know, the founding organization of community radio in the United States, as well as other community radio stations, saw their licenses either uh, have their uh, licenses renewals delayed or were given short Renewals. So, typical renewal period at that time was three or four years, and they would be given only one year renewals. Uh, You know, when, because there would be these complaints filed about the programming uh, that was at the time countercultural or politically uh, challenging. Um, The FCC in 1963 sent a letter to Pacifica uh, asking, were there communists? (laughs) <laughs> on board in 1963 and so the red scare was often carried out through these sorts of meat the, these sorts of uh, mechanisms as well and so that's why you know even though this seems like an all f- smoke and no fire kind of threat it's important for us to recognize how um the fcc has been used as a mechanism to enforce a, a uh you know basically a kind of political uh uh, content regulation not explicitly but obviously implicitly in a lot of ways
2: sure and Um, these days i guess it's more it's worth recognizing that um they don't need an explicit political motive in order to uh limit the number of voices that have access to the airwaves well right and i
0: think it's important to note that that the fact that uh Right now, the FCC is about as defanged as it's ever been as a result of deregulation, as, as Christopher Terry and I spoke about in our interview. Um, and I know sometimes people who are on the political left or, or who consider themselves political progressives are upset that. Uh, Sinclair Communications, for instance, which owns TV stations that is forcing its local TV stations to air these pro-Trump segments during as part of its TV news. They're upset that they're able to do this and that, you know, there's no action to take against them. But it's also important. I think to recognize that the sort of, if the SEC were able to do anything about that, that same power would be exacted against community radio, would be exacted against progressive voices, and most likely would be exacted two or three times in severity, right? right? Because the, because the economic power I know, you know, of, Tom of, of these voices would, would are, is significantly weaker than the economic power behind a
2: Sinclair or the economic power behind a, a premier radio networks, Rush Limbaugh, etc. Yeah, I'm thinking about how the fairness doctrine would be used on on uh, certain programs that that, you know, have Bernie Sanders on the radio uh, once a week. Right, the the fairness doctrine being uh, what was an FCC policy that
0: required uh, balance. That if if, you know that required that if a station aired uh, an editorial or aired a voice uh, that was advocating for a particular policy, it had to air a voice opposing that policy. But most famously, the Nixon administration again uh, used the fairness doctrine um, to force broadcasters to air. It basically kind of twisted it so. You know, there's a State of the Union address which the president makes every January, and then historically, uh, the networks air a response by the by the party out of power. So uh, when President Obama was in office, the Republicans got a response. The Nixon administration, while he was in power, he had his State of the Union address. Democrats got a response. Filed a fairness doctrine request to get a counter response to the Democratic response. And and so you know, and sort of part of the legacy of that doctrine is that the fairness doctrine fair means well whatever you think it means because it it could be it could be sort of distorted and twisted depending on who the most powerful person was <sighs> pushing it, and I don't want to go down too right. much of a rabbit hole because I know many people
2: think the, uh, the the fairness doctrine did more good than harm, right?
0: And and I don't want this to be a debate about the, that.
2: But with the Federal Communications Commission being a body made up of political appointees, you can see how quickly you know if you watch the supreme court politics we all have, we all have sort of learned by now to to count to count those votes and you could expect a similar outcome.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why, uh, professor Terry focuses on the ownership limits, yeah. right? He notes, you know, and so really focusing on the fact that if we want to have a diversity of voices, then, then that comes more likely from a diversity of ownership, right? Uh, and that consolidated ownership consolidates voices and a diversity of ownership diversifies voices. And so keeping ownership, limits in place are more likely to persist a certain diversity oh, of gosh. voices you know, and
2: viewpoints. I'm sorry to say this right now, but the idea just popped into my my little brain. Uh there is no diversity of ownership with Facebook <laughs> or or Google or the Google or Twitter, right? Yeah. And 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 that to some extent or at least with Twitter no matter how hard they try, we get um our feed is our own.
0: Well, that you know, but, it, with, but, that's, but with
2: Facebook, but it's, they yeah, own the feed.
0: Yes and no. I mean, I mean, well, Twitter. It's yeah. again, uh, it it is just one corporate decision away from being yeah. different, and right? They,
2: and they've been doing a number of things to to monkey with the feed, as it were. Right. But yeah, with Facebook, we definitely, um, we already have uh, in the public sphere have been talking about the political ramifications right. of of that monolith. Uh, how interesting, and then. Oh, but I'm sorry I opened that can. Of yeah, worms. yeah. I'm well, all we can say about can can of that of is that Facebook is
0: something you can still opt into or opt out of. And you can certainly opt into radio or television, but there's a certain reliance in our culture on broadcast, I think, that still outpaces right. what we have. I know lots of people who are not on Facebook. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I actually do. I know lots of people who are not on Facebook. I, mean, I know a handful, and I, and I know many who are on, not on Facebook uh, for political reasons. Sure. because they because of the sort of monopoly control. I know many who are not on just because they don't think it enhances their life. I and mean, I know young way. people
2: that don't listen to the radio as well. Right, but I I, I don't. Yeah, a can of worms. Closing, but I do think that I do
0: think that broadcast still plays a certain primacy in our lives, and we're seeing that right now. We're seeing that right now uh, in, in the fires, the natural disasters wow. uh, that, that have been happening, whether it's the fires that are happening in Napa, Sonoma, Northern California, or, or the hurricane, which, which devastated Puerto Rico. M- multiple hurricanes devastated multiple regions Indeed. of the Pacific and in the Atlantic. And what we're seeing, though, is how radio is playing this important role in emergency communications or just maintaining communications, uh, to the extent to which the national association of broadcasters has donated 10,000 radios to Puerto Rico understanding. And and these are shortwave capable radios, understanding that, that the shortwave communications between, uh, radio amateurs has been really important in helping people stay in contact with their families, uh, in, in the diaspora across, uh, across the mainland United States outside of the island of Puerto Rico and helping communications within the island. Uh, Similarly, the same thing has been happening in Northern California where uh, basically radio amateurs, volunteers are, at hospitals and are at first responder sites all over the region so that they can provide communications uh, because often the emergency channels, the radio dedicated to fire and, and police and, and to other first responders are saturated and there's a lot of other communication that might need to flow and cell phone towers are out. Wi-Fi is out, but the radio still works Yeah, and that's, and, and radio stations are finding themselves being part of that, really vital communications infrastructure providing information to residents, to people who need to know along with just w- what may seem like mundane sorts of things. But in, in when you can't get email, when you can't get Facebook, when you right. can't get a text message becomes very important saying this particular emergency shelter uh, could really use some socks or uh, this coffee shop is open and running for anyone who needs to get water. Yeah. You know, and things like this.
2: I tuned in uh, on uh, one of the, one of the most important days of that Northern California fire to my uh, friends and former colleagues uh, broadcasting at KPFA, which is a large non-commercial broadcaster in the region, heard all over where those fires were impacting people. And I was so impressed by the way that they utilized a two-hour block of time to provide vital information uh, to those people. I want to put a link in the show notes to that episode just because um, bouncing from uh, facts on the ground that need to be communicated to people for human survival, like where to be and where not to be, uh, to talking to elected officials about what's on their minds at this moment while the fires were still burning, and then talking to first responders, people who are actively engaged in fighting that fire, so that they could be providing the the information, up to the date information. But what was so impressive to me, and what I want to use some of this time here on Radio Survivor to share, was just how um, how useful the airwaves were being. Uh, you know, I, I watch cable coverage of disasters, and I think. You know, the the word disaster porn comes to mind. It's a voyeuristic attitude towards covering the news. And the people in these non commercial radio stations were just doing it differently. And,
0: and and commercial radio. I I I wanna make sure that we, we don't
2: I didn't uh, listen to commercial radio yeah, that day.
0: That there are commercial stations that are based in in, in these areas. And many of them uh are independently owned or they're parts of small locally owned clusters. So the two, three stations, not necessarily one of a thousand or hundreds. And, and, and I don't, I don't want to say that that stations with large ownership are not doing a good public service job at this point. So that's not my point at all, but I I want to recognize the fact that commercial radio is jumping into the fray as well. Yeah. And, and folks, and, and making sure people have this information because I mean, at the same time, I don't think you can guarantee that people will will, will necessarily turn to KPFA if right. they're not normally KPFA listeners. No, no they certainly not. Sort of scan the dial looking for the best information that they can obtain. Um, but it's important to note that there are radio stations all over the region, and and at sometimes they get hyper local because there are stations that are more serving. Right part of Sonoma County or part of Napa County and not the entire region. And they're in this position to provide information that may be very pinpoint. It'd be very difficult for a large regional station to run down every single emergency announcement for a whole cluster of communities for dozens and dozens of towns. But a station based, let's say just in, in, in parts of Sonoma can run down what is going on in Healdsburg, what is going on in Windsor and run down these different towns in a way that – and in, in part because often it's the connections. they, The people who work there know the business owners. Yeah. They know the chief of police. They know the county first responders. Um, and in a way that someone working in San Francisco or Oakland just simply may not. It and re- it's
2: nothing against the folks working in the big stations.
0: It, it, it's almost like a structural
2: yeah. uh, barrier. It reminds me of something Christopher Terry talked about on the very first interview that we recorded with him. I don't remember – the episode number, but he was talking about how a time when uh, people broadcasting in the Midwest uh, couldn't pronounce street names
0: because oh, right. Be- they well, weren't
2: there anymore. Right, because
0: you, you, what, what he's talking about is that, yeah, you had your, your local station newly taken over by a company like Clear Channel. You hear a DJ who is mispronouncing place names in your town because – they're not in your town They've because never been there. they're in Indianapolis, not in somewhere in central Missouri. They've never been there. And, of course, often we all know in a, in a place uh, there's all sorts of streets or towns that if you look at the pronunciation, you think, oh, be, there's a street here in, in Portland, C-O-U-C-H. I knew you were going to say Cooch. It, it pronounced Cooch because it's named after a person, but everyone else would say Couch. It's couch street, but yeah. it's a giveaway whether or not you are actually from the area. There's a tip. You can fake being from Portland if you just call it cooch. You get here. <laughs> exactly. But every city, every region, every state has those sorts of things. And, and this is it. This is the, the, the real hyper localness of radio. The fact that even a big, big station in a large city like Chicago or San Francisco or New York, it only goes so far, right? That when it comes to the, it goes to the horizon and that's about it. And that, you know, to some folks is a liability that you can't grow the audience behind a certain point, beyond beyond a certain point, but it also is an asset to the people who live in those communities who may have the opportunity to get that information. But if your local stations are not equipped meaning they don't have local staff if they don't have local news directors or okay. local managers ready to jump on the mic and take over and and even if that meant cutting away from syndicated programming or cutting away from automation uh, well then that could really be the difference between life and death and and that's one of the reasons why we sit here and we we, we promote radio local radio um, as a medium is because of this sort of service it can provide even with All of the other sorts of services we now have, when the cell tower goes down, the radio is still there. Sure, there are stations that have had to go, go off the air because of the fact that their transmitters are threatened or the power has gone out. Many stations run backup generators, and that helps them stay on. Uh, but having a rich local uh, media scene where you're not just relying on one station necessarily means then you do have redundancy. You do a backup. And that's why we talk about it here. And we'll be writing more about it at our website, radiosurvivor.com. And if you're listening to us via podcast, uh, we'd love it if you would rate us on whatever app you use, whether it's like Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever you do that helps other people find the show. And, of course, uh, you can find all of our archives that are something you want to go back and listen
2: to or listen to again. Or maybe you're joining the show midway. Yeah, uh, go listen to Dr. Christopher Terry's first interview with us where he tells us his professional backstory, his origin story for – for how he uh how he got involved in i mean he was already involved but but yeah wait <laughs> i'm hinting it's something i don't want to just dive in and tell the entire story no. i want you to go hear the story how he went from being somebody in the radio industry to becoming a professor of communication and law yeah right? and what what media consolidation does to the people who work at a radio station and uh where they go when when their jobs get uh consolidated <laughs>
0: Go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. If you have any comments about the show, please send them to us podcast at radiosurvivor.com. This is a listener and reader supported enterprise. To learn more about how you can help Radio Survivor keep surviving, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Do you want, should we tell folks about what's happening next week? Yes, absolutely. We, we, we'd like to share a college radio success story where uh, stations helping each other... Mutual aid. Mutual aid to help uh, one threatened college radio station in Las Vegas uh, re-engage students and build a stronger station and keep it under university control, not get, not get turned over to another enterprise. So we're going to bring together the two... Uh, folks one person from fordham university uh, and one person from university yeah, of nevada york, las right? vegas yeah it's in new york uh the west and the east joining forces to save college radio for
2: students and they're going to tell us how they how they made this happen so we're really excited for that and that's next week on the show yeah enough enough stories about college radio stations uh, sadly fizzling out and shutting down and having their licenses sold off here's one Here's a story of uh, a station being revitalized with student uh, student support and student labor. So it's a, a wonderful tale of Radio Survivor success.
0: So that's next week on Radio Survivor. Thank you so much for spending an hour with us and uh, helping to celebrate great community media.
2: Thank you, Paul Mandel. It's been a pleasure. My name is Eric Klein. Uh, see you next week.